Hello and welcome to The World in 30-ish Minutes, ECFR's podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of the European Council on Foreign Relations and I'm joined today by some colleagues to discuss the Iran nuclear deal. This deal has been a long time coming. It is the result of many years of dogged diplomatic patience uh, by the Europeans uh, who were then joined by the Americans, the Russians and the Chinese in pushing for a uh, solution to the nuclear problem. And we got a deal on the 14th of July, a huge achievement for all the parties involved. It could promise to put the Iranian nuclear program under surveillance to prevent uh, an uncontrolled breakout by Tehran. And also, it makes it much less likely that Tel Aviv and Washington will have to bomb the Iranian nuclear program into submission. But no sooner had the ink dried on the deal than people were wondering whether it would actually unravel through the tortuous process of of ratification in in different capitals. And there's also questions about what it means for the future of the region. Is this just a a one-off exercise that takes one problem off the the table, or could it change the the wider regional dynamics? So I'm joined uh, by Ellie Garanmeyer, who's ECFR's expert on Iran. She's been camping out in Vienna over the last few weeks, watching the negotiations unfold, but has also just written a fascinating policy brief, which ECFR has published on engaging with Iran, a European agenda. Also, uh, Julian barnes Dacey, a senior policy fellow for ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program, who's worked as a journalist across the Middle East and has worked on many of the different regional crises that we're facing. And finally, by Daniel Levy, the head of the Middle East and North Africa program at ECFR. So, Ellie, why don't you start by telling us whether this deal is actually going to last? What are the, the politics of, of ratification? Is it going to survive the, the, scru- the scrutiny by hardliners, both in Washington and, and in Tehran? Sure, Mark. Well, what I'd say is the breakthrough that we had in Vienna um, this week is the beginning of the process of getting this deal done. Essentially, now um, what's been put on paper is going to go through a phase of limbo for essentially up to 82 days. Um, It's going to go through internal review process in both Iran and the US. Um, Europeans are also going to have a chance to debate this, but the chances of them actually settling or disagreeing with the terms are very, very minimal. Um, So the next phase is essentially going to be the when the deal is presented to Congress. Uh, Let's focus on that for a minute. So it's expected that on Saturday, uh, the administration is going to give the bundles to members of Congress to review the 159 pages of this deal. They're going to have about 60 days to actually review it from there. And then about 22 days after that, if it goes to a state of vote and a presidential veto, which has been promised by Obama, if members of Congress uh, vote down on the deal. Now, I think in particular when it comes to the dynamic in the U.S., they are going to need all the help they can get. The administration is going to need its allies on board. And 
we can expect in the next two months for a lot of members of Congress to go to Israel to visit Netanyahu, who has labeled the deal as a historic mistake. Uh, we also are going to see quite a lot of presence from the Gulf states uh, lobbying groups in, in Congress uh, to try and persuade them to vote against this deal. Um, now, that in itself isn't such a threat, but if the president can't hold his veto uh, powers, which currently the numbers are with him, but, uh, but if he can't hold his uh, veto, then I think that's going to present Europe with kind of a dilemma there about so where to go. This veto he needs to get at least a third. Of yes, exactly. Yeah. So to override the veto, they need two thirds of either um, the House or um, the Senate. Uh, right now, the the whip votes count is with the president, and you know we had a letter in April from 150. Um, senators supporting the deal. So currently the thing, things look good, but we know also events in the Middle East heavily influence members of Congress. Um, and so the next 60 uh, days could be a state of limbo and there could be um, dangers posed there for uh, Obama hold his hold on his veto. I should also say the deal is also going before the Iranian parliament, uh, which now in response to the Congress um, ability to review the bill, they're also going to review the act. But given that the Supreme Leader has given his approval and you know, very cautiously approved of the terms of the deal that were re released this week, uh, we don't think that's going to create much of a problem. And then I should add, the second phase of this deal is going to be when both sides uh, prepare for implementation of it. So Iran is going to take a lot of steps, probably over the next four to six months, to carry out its nuclear-related um, commitments under the deal. The Europeans and the Americans will be working very hard to basically do what's quite unprecedented, which is create the paperwork for removing sanctions, but also under a snapback provision. Now, this is going to be a very technically demanding task, and both sides have to show that they can um, fulfill their commitments under the deal. Snapback means that if Iran's not in compliance with the, in full compliance with the implementation, that the sanctions will come back into place. And who will decide if Iran's not fully compliant? The IAEA? Or so there's going to actually be a joint commission set up, uh, which is going to be a dispute resolution uh, method under the deal, where there's going to be a member from each of the E3 plus 3 states and Iran. And essentially, because America and Europe are probably going to be aligned on a decision on this, it does give um, the Western powers in that dynamic um, the, the, the right to say that Iran isn't obliging by the deal and they can then snap back sanctions. Those sanctions will just be unilateral US and EU sanctions rather than UN sanctions? Well, there's also a method to actually put back the UN Security Council resolution sanctions if Iran is found to be in serious infringement of its commitments. So the next big challenge from the US is presumably going to be uh, the challenge of the Republican primaries where and then the presidential election where many candidates presumably are going to have to promise to uh, to withdraw from the deal if uh, if they're elected well the debate unfolding in uh, Capitol Hill is really fascinating. I mean, people are coming out against the deal without even having read the report, you know, read the 159-page agreement. And it's very clear that this Iran deal is going to become the next presidential um, issue. Um, Clinton, who's running for the Democrats, has said that she will stick by the deal 
um, and she's in support of the president. Um, others uh, standing for the GOPs um, have come out saying this is the, the worst deal that Obama could have made, uh, even though you know the world powers and their scientists all agree that this was the most reasonable and fair deal that could be achieved. So, but what what's the debate about that in Tehran? Because presumably, if I mean, do, do do people think it's likely that an American president could walk away from the terms of the deal? And what would that mean? Well, I I actually think the Iranians have played their cards well here because they've now struck this deal. They will, I mean, once it comes to meeting their obligations, there are some very technically and difficult um, commitments that they have to fulfill, and they're going to need the West's help to do that from a technical aspect. But if Congress essentially derails the steel even before they start implementing, they will now have the perfect blame game opportunity to say that the West the West basically reneged on its um, deal here. We gave an, a chance for engagement. Um, the Supreme Leader will be proved right that you couldn't trust America. And it will, I think, have a huge impact on the Russian and the Chinese being on board with the sanctions framework against Iran. So we'll see that wither away. Okay. So... We will all hold our breath over the summer, see what happens when Congress comes back on the 8th of September and whether this deal gets ratified. But let's suspend disbelief <laughs> for a few minutes and imagine that that happens, that Obama triumphantly uh, secures his, his legacy. What does that actually look like? There's a real debate going on about whether this is going to have to be a self-contained exercise or whether it could actually lead to new dynamics in the region. Nick Burns wrote a piece in this week's FT uh, saying that the deal is is uh, a good thing. It's the least bad um, solution to, to the nuclear problem. But um, the US is going to uh, carry on containing Iran rather than engaging with it because uh, Iran's still a problem uh, on all the other portfolios uh, that the US is concerned about. And also just the, the politics of getting this through Congress will mean that, that Obama's going to need to stand firm. What, what's your assessment on that, uh, Julian? Well, I mean, on the, I actually don't agree, and I think we've already seen that that's not going to be the case. Um, Obama yesterday made his most explicit statement yet that uh, Iran needs to be brought into negotiations on Syria and that they need to have a central role there. And that's something that he's not been prepared to countenance up until now and is clearly a, a direct result of the deal being reached. The same with European governments. Yesterday, the UK foreign minister talked about a greater uh, need for, for engagement with Iran on some of these regional issues. So I think it's quite clear that from a Western perspective, there is a desire and a hope that bringing in from Iran in from the cold on the nuclear dish issue can actually be the beginning of a process that helps Iran to become a partner in solving some of the regional crises. The real issue, I guess, is how uh, the other regional players respond to them, to the, to the deal and, and to the regional situation. For them, for a long time now, the nuclear deal hasn't been about the nuclear issue. They're not so focused on whether the deal secures um, Iranian nuclear capabilities or not. They're concerned about what it means for Iranian power in the region. And so far as they see it, Iran is now going to be unleashed in terms of the, 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 the bringing down of sanctions to have more money to deploy regionally. And so far as they see it, the West is now going to bring Iran in as a full partner. And, and from their corner, they see an Iran that, that is perceived to be meddling in, in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Bahrain. And there's a real fear um, 
that the, 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 this will entrench Iran's position, that this will help escalate their capabilities. And of course, they're all out to, to prevent that. So, so the concern is not so much that the, whether or not the West can bring Iran in to a regional process in terms of dealing with the, the political security issues, but whether the regionals will actually allow that process to unfold or whether they themselves are going to double down on their own adversarial positions and the likes of Yemen, etc., and we're actually going to see a, a deepening of, of, of the regional security crises unfolding as this kind of, as the, the, the lack of linkage now that, that we've seen for, for so long between the nuclear issue and the regional issue now, now comes back to haunt um, the various players. So, Daniel, you've uh, been also looking at a lot of the, the big regional questions. Um, and have been a, a persistent advocate for engaging Iran on, on uh, a lot of the problems. In fact, I think the argument that those in favour of engaging Iran have made is, is that the reason you need to engage them is precisely because they are the problem of all these things. It's because um, they are uh, one of the key players in this sectarian war. They are creating instability in all of their neighbouring countries. Um, do you think that engagement will allow us to have any more influence on Iranian behaviour than uh, the attempts to contain Iran over the, the last few years? I think engagement in and of itself, if I were to only look at it from that angle, I'd be dubious. But I think it depends on the network <clears throat> and the density of interests that are created for Iran <clears throat> Excuse me, around a different set of relations and how far those are seen to be linked to uh, the way in which Iran deploys its influence and its power in the region. I think it's a very open question whether off the back of this deal we will see an attempt both on the Western side and especially the US side and on the Iranian side to silo any change in relations simply to the nuclear file. Is this just about Iran's nuclear program, the sanctions that have resulted from that, and on every other front we maintain an adversarial relationship? Or is it about exploring what can be done once the nuclear issue is parked? The nuclear issue, of course, was almost the only thing one could engage with Iran on. If that is parked, can one now look and say, where do our interests converge? Where do they diverge? And slowly kind of try and gel a way of working with Iran on the region. I think that's an open question. I think it's definitely worth exploring. And that's what we've been uh, suggesting. It may even have been a mistake to have so exclusively focused on, on nuclear file. I mean, it's really interesting that one of the criticisms that's coming out of the region is, hey, but you've only dealt with the nuclear file. And that's coming from the folks who until now said, hey, it's the nuclear file. So I think now everyone has to take a deep breath. I think Europe is in many ways better positioned than the Americans in exploring how far one can go forward. And this is what Ellie's written about, of course, how far one can go forward in probing the extent to which de-escalation can now be on the agenda um, in 
engagement with Iran, of course, while working with the existing regional allies who, who are just as crucial to de-escalation. So, Ellie, you've written this great paper on engaging with Iran, a European agenda. Um, before we talk about how we could engage with Iran, maybe you could just give us a very quick scorecard about where do you think European and Iranian interests are aligned on the regional things? Where are is there scope for tactical um, cooperation? And where are we fundamentally at loggerheads? Sure. Well, I think it was really interesting yesterday in Hammond's comments to uh, from Minister Hammond's comments to Parliament that he did explicitly say that he expects Iran to be part of the uh, anti-ISIS campaign when it comes to Iraq. And obviously that's been building up over the last year. There's been behind the scenes tactical coordination happening already with the US-led air campaign, which the West and many European um, countries are a part of, and the ground campaign against ISIS that Iran is essentially um, leading. So I think that's one area that at least is going to be more openly um, coordinated. Uh, maybe not partnership yet, but I think we will see more open coordination of their efforts against ISIS. Um, when it comes to Afghanistan, what's happening with the with the peace talks between, well, if you can call them peace talks, the reconciliation talks between Taliban and the central government now, Iran is actually making much more of an effort to speak to Taliban now and bringing them into some process of power sharing, uh, which we know already that many European states are involved with in Afghanistan. Uh, perhaps in Lebanon, we saw the parliamentary speaker yesterday say that now that the Iran deal has happened, maybe we can find a president for this country. So I think uh, maybe that's another area where they can push into. Syria, unfortunately, I think will be the most slow moving. And that's because there is such an entrenched regional rivalry now going on between the Saudis and the Iranians there that we're just going to have to at least start with the process of getting a communication between these two big powers before there can be any constructive movement on the ground there. Okay, Julian, does that? How does uh, do you see that? And what, are there other areas where you think that there could either be uh, closer cooperation, or where there are going to be problems and massive tensions between the West and Iran? Well, I think the the the, the urgent priority needs needs to be the Middle Eastern situation. I mean, that's where. Uh, the, the the level of conflict with with potential implications for for Europe is so dire, and and clearly it's not going to be easy given that this is this is not a conflict between Iran and the West. This is a conflict being driven amongst and between regional players, and so the nuclear deal, um, which was very much driven and and framed by by, by Western and, and the inter broader international community, is, is secondary in a sense to, to to the critical battle unfolding on the ground. And I, th I think one needs to be cautious about thinking that the nuclear deal is suddenly going to open up all these possibilities. I mean, that being said, I mean clearly. Syria is, is, is so central to so much of what's happening in the region. The conflict there has implications on, on, on Iraq, on Lebanon, on Jordan, in terms of the wider polarization. So I think that is both the hardest issue, but also the most necessary. And I think it, it, it's been a long-standing policy position of, of, of many of the Western players to say that, no, Iran can't have any role in that. And, and that is now shifting. As I say, Obama yesterday made clear that, that Iran needs to be drawn into that. There was talk recently of the establish, potential establishment of a contact group that would bring in the Iranians, bring in other regional players, the Gulf, the Turks, etc. And I think that's clearly one area where uh, the West European states now need to focus and to think about how they can create fan conditions that, that, that would that would at least 
test that proposition out and see whether Iran may now be more willing four years into this deadly conflict to, 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 to be more constructive, whether Gulf states and the Turks, for instance, now that the threat of ISIS may, is expanding, may themselves be prepared to enter into a process. That's not likely to happen in the immediate aftermath of the deal because of their immediate fears being amplified. But, but clearly talking to Iran and taking that process forward it is something that now needs to be tested. And I guess one of the, the, the lessons of the nuclear talks is that a seemingly intractable problem in which there was no easy answers, in which some people were advocating a military solution, but which itself was a distant kind of hope in terms of of, of the possibility of achieving its aims, actually dogged diplomacy worked there. And, and, And can that focus now be shifted to the likes of Syria? And can, I mean, a new focus be brought to bear on the region? I think it's a real issue that the West is in many senses neglecting this, this, this real issue. This, this acute issue, which is really imploding the wider region, has such global implications. And can the same intensity now be brought to bear on there in a manner that includes Iran in potentially constructive ways? Who knows? But, but there are so few good options out there and there's such an urgency to look at it. So, so that would be my um, sense of where this needs to now go. So before we come to sort of concrete things which Europeans in particular can do, the other kind of big uh, regional player because uh, you mentioned the Gulf and, and Saudi, but the, the other one which we mentioned slightly earlier on is a country that you're quite familiar with, uh, Daniel. Um, how is Israel going to play this? <laughs> Look, this has been... And first, I think it's, it's important for people to, to recognise that this is, is not an issue that has, has really exercised the Israeli public or something that you've seen mass mobilisation in the public or votes uh, and electoral considerations have have, uh, revolved around. Clearly, Israel and Iran have a deeply adversarial relationship. Uh, Both threaten one another. And Israel has genuine uh, and legitimate security concerns vis-a-vis Iran. This has also, of course, been the core celebra of the, the, the Netanyahu premiership in Israel. Now, it's worth remembering, actually, that, that Netanyahu <coughs> launched a special Farsi Twitter feed. Yes, I was just going to get out. Have you been following it, Ellie? I have been following it. <laughs> I, you just know, in case there was anyone in Iran who thought that he, he, was, he liked the deal. Well, he is. I mean, you know, Netanyahu, before he entered a political career, was a furniture salesman in the United States. And I think he's gone a little bit back to that role because I think he is now the principal salesperson for the deal inside Iran. How can this deal be so bad, even if you're an Iranian hardliner, if Netanyahu is so against it? If Netanyahu had come out and said, this is a win, I've been working, this is exactly what I've been fighting for, I think Rouhani and Zarif would absolutely be in a terrible situation. So first of all, kudos to Netanyahu for helping smooth the passage of the deal with the hardliners in Iran. But I think he's also, look, a a lot of the message, as it has throughout Iran, around Iran, for Netanyahu has been about a domestic audience and his friends on the American side, on the Republican side, uh, the donors that he shares with the Republican Party in America. I, I think the problem with Netanyahu is he does tend to get carried away with rhetorical flourish. I I worry, actually, that while we focus a lot on the damage <coughs> that his approach may have caused to the U.S.-Israel relationship, one shouldn't underestimate just how insulting this has been to Israel's other allies. If you turn round and tell Angela Merkel and Steinmeier 
and the Germans who line up with Israel in often quite difficult times and in ways that are quite difficult to hold a line on. If you tell them five minutes after a deal that they have spent endless sleepless nights fighting for and negotiating, that this is akin to a Chamberlain Munich sellout, that this is a historic... This is very insulting. And I think that the, the tone and the approach is... Funnily enough, back in Israel, that's what he's mainly been criticised on. There's not much of an argument over the deal. Security types have focused on the fact that in the nuclear file itself, it does set back the Iranian nuclear programme. But the, the, the terms of the debate in Israel have been over how Netanyahu mishandled this. And you can understand that from, uh, from the perspective of Israeli domestic politics. What is Netanyahu trying to do? I think he's going for a twofer. The first hit that he's trying to achieve, which I think he will fail at, is can he still pull off a congressional uh, veto-proof vote uh, with everything that he can bring to bear uh, with his friends in the states inside Congress? If that doesn't work, I think his goal is exactly what we've been talking about here, over what does this deal portend beyond the nuclear file? And his goal is to keep that as fragile, as controversial, as limited and as questioned as possible, so that come January 2017, whatever happens between America and Iran, as much of that can be um, reversed as possible. I don't know how successful he'll be on that. That's his goal, and I think he's, he, he's, he's, it's a very high-risk gamble he's taking. So we can uh, assume that the US is going to be quite constrained in terms of what it can do. The big hope of in your paper, Ellie, on engaging with Iran is that Europeans can do a bit more. We're, we're running out of time just as we get to these crucial points about what Europeans can do. So maybe I could ask each of you in a minute to, to say what you think um, uh, the a European agenda for engaging Iran would be. And Ellie, why don't you give us the, the quick version of your policy recommendations. Sure, I think the starting point is uh, what Julian said is who knows and it's about exploring and testing the options for a constructive movement from Iran. So we've said Europe has more uh, necessity to do this, it has more ability to do this and it may have a better precedent, well it does have a better precedent for engaging with the Islamic Republic of Iran. So one of these precedents was during the comprehensive dialogue days uh, where we had a broad agenda uh, on a number of issues, but one we think that we should now prioritize is that's the regional That's when Khatami was in power. That's when Khatami was in power, that's yeah. when Javier Solana was leading uh, the dialogue with Iran. And we're suggesting essentially that once this E3 plus 3 platform exhausts after the nuclear negotiations, for the Europeans to start an engagement process on regional security with a high rep and EU3 formula, that's France, Germany and the UK. Um, we've suggested in the paper a, a mandate for the agenda that should be approached, which includes um, Saudi-Iran relations, Syria, Iraq, Hezbollah, Israel. But it needs to be on the same high intensity and high level that was led on the nuclear diplomacy initiative. And we think Europeans are well-placed to do this. But to help them do this, they also need the logistical structure. Uh, Europeans, especially the EU, needs to reboot its political um, ties with Iran. Uh, for example, actually using the, uh, the money that's there to create a permanent mission in Iran and create a consultation for a broad um, dialogue on a range of issues that we have interests that overlap and diverge. Great. Well, that should be enough to, to keep uh, the EU busy for, for a long time. And presumably, we've got to open an embassy first and make sure that, that we actually have uh, the scope to do that on the ground. That's been a, a really interesting discussion. I think we've got time for one more segment which is our bookshelf 
segment. Um, but nobody's read anything, so therefore, maybe we should just... Vienna, um, so right. have, you read the, have you read The Nuclear Deal? I Is have. it a good read? I, I read oh, okay. The Nuclear Deal yesterday, all 159 pages, so I think that's, that's not my recommendation. Is it, is it up there with Le Carre? <laughs> so you're recommending The Nuclear Deal or not? You can read uh, Ellie's blog posts on it, in order if you don't, she's read it so that you won't have to. Julian, have you had a chance to read anything? I, I, I have to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> Daniel? Well, it's the summer, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting into a, a, a bit of fiction. Dinamen Gistu, all our names. It tells a story of uh, partly in the US, partly based in, uh, in Uganda, and uh, I'm only a third of the way into it, so I'll uh, save the rest for a future podcast. And I just started reading Michel Welbeck's latest book, Soumission. He's written, oh, you've... Which is uh, right. a, uh, a, 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 just early stages of it, but it's a, it's a, a pretty uh, Welbeckian take on the whole question of, of, of the role of Islam in contemporary society. So I'll report back on future Do you podcasts. Do spoiler of what happens at the end? <laughs> <laughs> So um, thank you very much. It's been a, it's a really good discussion. We'll see what happens in uh, Washington, in Tehran, in Tel Aviv over the months ahead and whether this does lead to a different regional dynamics. If you want to see more about what ECFR is saying about this, I recommend that you go to our website, www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, where you can find also Ellie's paper, Engaging with Iran, a European Agenda from Daniel Levy, Julian Barnes-Dacey, Ellie Garen-Meyer and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel. Mm-hmm.